As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Danny Kelly. This is, of course, the uh, View from the Lane podcast. Thank you for joining us. And we're joined as well today, as always, um, by some top people from The Athletic. Jack Pitbrook is with us and Charlie Eccleshare. Um, And seeing as we're in International Week, we'll start off with a story uh, you shared in our WhatsApp group over the weekend, Jack. Maurizio Pochettino has been visiting quite a famous restaurant in London. Yeah, so he's been to, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, Nuzzeret. Uh, N-U-S-R hyphen E-T. It's Salt, most famously known as Salt Bay's Restaurant, which is just Mm -hmm. open in London. This is something which has kind of grown out of, I think, Dubai initially. And is now really, really popular with football people all over the world. And so, and he's most famous, Salt Bay, for doing this thing where he like sprinkles salt in a really affected fashion on his food. And when footballers and football people go to his restaurants, they do the same thing. And Pochettino was doing it. And this was a photo on uh, Salt Bay's Instagram. For this privilege, the steak, and I'm sure it's a very decent steak, costs upwards of 600 of your English pounds. I mean, I know Pochettino is interested in steak and grilling in general because there was always those pictures, A, of him and other Argentinian Spurs celebrities like Ardiles um, going to steak restaurants. And B, didn't he get as a present from the players at one stage, a great big grill set up with his name written along the front, engraved along the front of it. To, to add to it, uh, Jack, it, there seems to be a new gimmick now to make the steak worth 600 quid in that he pour, he puts lemon juice on it now, doesn't he? By, and you run, you squirt the lemon juice onto your forearm and he runs down and drops off again to your elbow. Danny, uh, you know more about Salt Bay than I do. Oh, I I've thought been, I was I've a Salt expert, but I, I oh, feel no, clueless I've, no, no, to I, you. I, I, I'm utterly obsessed with him for the last two years oh. because... Um, because anybody who can make coin in a realm out of complete wankery, I am absolutely yeah. thrilled and interested in them. £50 cappuccino, £9 Coca-Cola, £100 gold-covered burger. You say the last couple of years, but I remember at the start of 2017, there was quite a thing where players were scoring goals and celebrating. There was Danny Welbeck scored in the FA Cup for Arsenal against Southampton and did a Salt Bay celebration. 
Which shows uh-huh. you, I mean, the fact that players were doing it, were kind of paying homage in that kind of way. I mean, he has infiltrated that footballer world for some time now. And, My favourite um, Salt Bay moment was after the 2018 Champions League... You've Champions- got a favourite <laughs> Salt Bay moment. Yeah, We've all got right. one. Uh, after the 2018 <laughs> Champions League final... Um, when Liverpool lost to Real Madrid and obviously Mohamed Salah went off injured with that um, broken shoulder. He, Salt Bay was in the mix zone afterwards getting photos with the players expecting them to be delighted to see him because, you know, he's made them all stakes and everything. And he, he's posing with this photo with Salah. And Salah has clearly gone through the worst night of his professional life. You know, he's gone off in a painful injury in the biggest ever game, which Liverpool mm. have lost. Salah looks like he's utterly broken and just has been... He looks like he's had his soul sucked out the back of his head. He's so upset. And Salt Bay is doing this stupid grin with his arms around Salah, posing for this photo that Salah is obviously desperate not to be in. Also, really hard for Salah to do the salt bay with that broken impossible. shoulder as yeah, well, just to make matters worse. It, does that picture exist? Is that been? Yeah, just Google Salah salt bay, and you'll see this incredible, <laughs> incredible photo, which I think is really uh, the measure of the man. I found this picture, and it is incredible. It is incredible. Uh, the headline on Joe.co.uk is Liverpool fans can't believe Salt Bay's post-match picture with dejected Mo Salah. And I do think the intro here is quite good. Time and a place, Salt Bay, pal. Time and a place. And uh, yeah, and I've got another good Salt Bay moment actually. Just after, just in that. Welcome to all Salt Bay podcasts. <laughs> in that 2017 uh, era where players were celebrating. It would have been around February because my nephew was born. One of his earliest pictures, he happens to be kind of curled up and it looks like he's doing his sort of Salt Bay homage. So that's how ubiquitous it was at the time. I suppose for people hoping for a serious podcast, probably gone to the wrong podcast. The only point is he does spend a lot of time in London, doesn't he? That's all I'm saying. Let's not go go into any further than that. Well, but Um, also, sorry, last one last (laughs) final one. No, (laughs) just keep going. This is it for Salt Bay. But last year, Willian, I think he broke COVID protocols. And this was the time where Arsenal fans were already raging with him for being really crap and he yes. went off uh breaking covid protocols to dubai and posed for pictures with salt bay which was held up as kind of you know the absolute fu- you know crowning turd in the water pipe to quote a line from blackadder mm. um so salt bay has actually been in- he's one of those people he's been involved in lots of key footballing moments over the last few years let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the recent international uh, football and I watched the semi-finals and the final and the third place game of the Nations League. The standard of the football was fantastic. The games were great. It reminded me of the European Championships when I was a boy, when there were only eight teams in it. So you didn't get the three-week tournament, but you got astonishing level of football because there were only good teams in it. And France uh, won the, uh, the final to add to their World Cup of three years ago. But the hero was uh, was Hugo Lloris, who in the last 10 minutes, um, defended their 2-1 lead heroically. One particular save down to the right-hand side, I think from Ayazabal, who'd got the Spanish goal. A fantastic yeah. stop. And it got me thinking about whether um, w- whether he's actually an underrated asset at, at Tottenham Hotspur, underrated thing in the history of the club, because I think he's a fantastic goalkeeper. I know he doesn't do many of the modern things. He doesn't do the distributing over 70 yards. In fact, let's be fair, once in every game, he just boots the ball out of play, doesn't he? Um, But I have a golden rule in football. I have several, but one of them is um, don't change the goalkeeper unless you're absolutely sure the next person is better because they're they're so hard to get a good goalkeeper in there. And if you think about the turmoil Spurs had getting to the point where they finally signed Hugo Lloris, and of course he can't play forever, but goalkeepers can play on for a long time. 
And I just wondered if uh, if either of you two watching the club uh, week in, week out, agree with me that he's perhaps an underrated asset. The measure of how valuable Luis is is that when he goes, Tottenham are unlikely to replace him with anyone as good. You know, he's been one of the most consistent goalkeepers in the world in the last sort of 10 years. And I know he, he sometimes gets he gets periods of stick and I know like every now and then he'll make a bad mistake, which because he's so good will look even worse, I think, than it is. But his ability his shot stopping ability, I think, is kind of undimmed. Even at the age of thirty four, he makes he makes better saves than ever, really, just like he showed in that France game. Well, I did a piece when he broke the record, the Spurs Premier League record uh, end of August for appearances and so on. That spoke to a lot of people, including his predecessor, Brad Friedel, about Lloris and, and everyone's glowing about him. And and I don't think it's just the kind of goalkeeping fraternity. You know, it was other people as well. He's, I mean, we his speed, his shot stopping, all of those things are unbelievably good. He's, you know, a, an amazing leader to have around. Um and also, you know, the thing with him really is that since that Brighton game where he got that bad injury and had a few months out, that's coming up to two years ago since he came back. It's more than two months, two years since the injury, but two years since he came back. He's been so consistent. Like He really has. Like, as much as we, he, he uh, you know, he had that period in the kind of year or so leading up to that injury where he was making the odd gaffe. You know, there were even calls at that time, you know, should he be dropped, which, you know, now in hindsight looks as kind of ludicrous as it was at the time. But, um, you know, since then, he's he's been so solid and he's been one of Spurs' best players. And actually, you, as you say, like when you don't have a solid keeper, it is such a soap opera. I mean, you remember Liverpool pre allison and all of that, Carrius, Mignolet, all of that stuff. Arsenal for years were kind of a good goalkeeper away from properly challenging for the title. Having a good goalkeeper who you don't have to worry about is so invaluable. And I think actually that's going to be, if and when he goes, whether it's this summer or further down the line, that's going to be a really problematic uh, thing to do to get in a, a, a replacement who can just hit the ground running and slot in straight away. Because even if you get someone good, you know, you look at someone like David De Gea, it does take a while to to adjust to the Premier League. And Lloris actually, initially, AVB was playing Friedel over him. But then once he got in the team for, for good in about that November of his first season, he's just been very, very reliable and dependable in the big picture, you, you know, aside from a few errors. My worry about, about it is that it's one of the classic familiarity breeds contempt. He's always yeah, been there. Totally. So, so you think, well, um, could we be doing better? Yeah. Um, I'm not, I mean, and also, he, he's responding at 34 years of age in an incredibly professional way to being under pressure. Spurs have brought in Gollini, who has played for Italy, don't forget, mm. to put pressure on him equally with France. Their reserve goalkeeper has been brought in to replace Donnarumma at AC Milan. It's not like he's got no competition for his place in these teams. And I think for me, the abiding memory of the of the other night was when he was lifting the trophy. The look on the French players' faces, half of them, there's a photograph, half of them are looking at the trophy in the sky as he lifted above his head. The other half just beaming at him personally. You can see the, the affection which he's held by the French players. I think he really says a lot for Lloris's sort of quiet but authoritative leadership that he is so well respected in what is a pretty, you know, at times a pretty tempestuous dressing room. You know, a lot of egos in that front squad. You know, Benzema's come in and out of the team. They've got, you know, some huge figures who I think need yeah. a little bit, a bit of corralling sometimes. And yet Lloris clearly has exactly the right the right personality to do so. And to be honest, also given that, you know, as 
everyone who listens to this podcast knows he hasn't really won anything in club football since he's been at Tottenham. I am really pleased for him that he has managed totally. to lift a World Cup in a Nations League. And like you say, kind of watching, I know France were a bit bit unbalanced at the Euros, I thought. I think yeah. they, it's like they didn't really know what, obviously Benzema came into the team and it kind of upset everything. But you definitely have them amongst the favourites in Qatar next year. What was interesting as well, and, and I think to that point Jack makes about his leadership for France and how well he's respected, he... And this was people, you know, for that piece, speaking to people close to him and what have you, they said, you know, he has had to bear a lot of the burden of the leadership at Spurs over the previous few years. I mean, especially now with, you know, once you lose Vertonghen and Alderweireld and those kind of characters, he's had to do so much of it. And I think that that has taken a toll and we, and we sometimes forget that. You know, he, so much of the leadership at Tottenham, they look to him. You know, he's the guy. And I think that can be wearing and that can be tiresome in the way when you feel like, you know, <laughs> does it always have to be me who's the yeah. one taking responsibility? You know, can others not do a bit of this as well? So I think he's been a real rock during a pretty tempestuous period. For well, Spurs. I'm glad then that, that my, just watching him and smiling at him, lifting the trophy uh, and thinking carefully about what he means to the team, um, it does seem to be um, a, a view matched by your own. The only thing, and thank you for reminding, of course, that that terrible shoulder injury at Brighton meant he couldn't mm. do the Salt Bay at all for well, several I think, months. Yeah. You know, he just <laughs> he couldn't was get gutted about. Oh, that. he was furious, absolutely <laughs> livid. Let's talk about the Dubrovnik three. How are they getting on? So some of them, not all of them, are playing. So Davinson Sanchez has yet to play a minute for Colombia. He's been on the bench for both of their their nil nils against Uruguay and Brazil. He had bit, he had put in some pretty sketchy performances, hadn't he? I remember them think like that the him and Mina partnership was a little bit under fire in Colombia as well. They got beaten six one in, in that was what, it, yeah. And in, in, I can't remember quite remember who by, and he got plenty of the blame for that. Mm. Although uh, you know, so did so did Ospina and a whole lot of other people were getting blamed for it. But apparently, Lacelso is playing brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, so they hammered Argentina drew nil nil with Paraguay last mm. week, but then they beat Uruguay three nil on Monday night, and. I watched. There's a you can find on YouTube a clip of all of Lo Celso's involvement in that game, and he was amazing. Like he got he got two assists. He was so many great flicks coming into the left hand side, really involved in everything Argentina did, carrying the ball forward, getting the ball in the box, creating chances. He looks really really on top of his game at the moment. Unlike you two gents, I don't have a proper job, um. So I I watched a lot of these South American qualifiers in the middle of the night, and it was it was a fantastic game. Now Messi was sublime on the night. But Giovanni Lo Celso was almost as good. And the two of them now play very, very close together and do a kind of... It's, it's like watching five a side on the edge of the box. The passes tend to be five and six yards rather than 15 or 20 yards. And he had a great game. And I hope that um, Nuno was watching it and can think... Because he, he is a much more likely solution to Tottenham's creativity problems, in my mind, than either Deli Alley or uh, Ndombele, I've got to be honest. Well, Lo Celso, this is something I've written about before. When he was breaking through, he was seen as the partner for Messi, the socio, as they call him there. Like, they've always had this really good understanding going back a couple of years. And then, you know, at the Copper as well, there was there were some flashes of that as well. So he clearly, with the right system, has the ability to play up. But yeah, I agree with you, Danny, on that um, kind of who can be the guy to unlock opposition defences. I, I do think, well, he certainly is more suited to that role than Delhi. And it's just it's just this constant question. And this is what I wrote about with Celso a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, this conundrum of how do you get the best out of him? But Because clearly there is a big upside if, if and when you can work that out. My worry about him is that he's a bit, possibly a bit slight, or 
uh, like unlike say Luka Modric, hasn't worked out a, a way of playing if you're a slight player in the physicality of the Premier League. But this was against Uruguay, and let's be fair, there's no team on earth that takes fewer prisoners. Possibly, hmm. possibly Andorra take fewer prisoners um, than Uruguay. And it was just interesting watching him as they were flying in and around him and he was just picking the pass again and again and again. So well done. I mean, a fantastic performance by him and an eye-opener, I think, um, for people like myself who are wondering whether they, you know, it's two years now, whether they mm-hmm. can get him fit and flying in the Premier League. Couple more And notes. a clean sheet for Romero as well. Uh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, played, he also played. I mean, Argentina, are, post the Copa America, they are playing really well. They've got it in their minds. They're a very good team. And, of course, with the World Cup coming up so quickly, um, I, I think the, the, the national mood is that they can they can get Lionel Messi past that finishing post. Mm. You know, we talked about France, but Argentina now fancy themselves to win it as well. Although the sight of Romero and Nicolas Otamendi Playing at the back still, I would say, gives opposition yeah. coaches a certain amount of optimism that if they can get the ball, they can get a goal. I've got two more bits to add on this international break roundup. The first is that Emerson Royale, back in the Brazil squad, he came on in Brazil's 3-1 win in Venezuela the other day for the last 13 minutes, uh, but didn't make it on in their 0-0 draw with Colombia. And something that I really loved was during Wales's 1-0 win in Tallinn, last night some Wales fans had a fantastic banner up just saying the Joe Roden experience <laughs> which That's is of great. course a nod to uh, the famous podcast the Joe Roden yeah. experience yeah. which of course is Eric Dyer's favourite podcast um, and just to say that the uh, appearance of Emerson for Brazil and Venezuela is not good news for Tottenham uh, Venezuela is one of those uh, South American countries that remains on the absolute red list Mm. And that whole Brazilian squad were required when they get back to Europe to do the full quarantine. But they can still play games even in that time, apparently. Is that right, Charlie? Yeah, I think because the exemption means that they... The exemption extends to the fact that they're remaining in their bubble for matches, as strange as that sounds. He'll be back at the lodge for training and all of that stuff, and then he can remain in the bubble for games. So it's... it's, um, The the main obstacle to any of these guys playing is just the fact that they'll be playing either Thursday night or Friday morning. That's too tight a turnaround to then play Sunday in Newcastle. Of course, and of course it would be Newcastle. You you lot will discuss this on Thursday. um, That uh, when the roof will be coming off St. James's Park, and in a good way, um, who will be providing the on-field entertainment, the lambs to the air, Yes, it'll be Spurs, won't it? Of course it will. Let's have a quick break and we'll come back and talk about uh, some pieces that Charlie has written in The Athletic over the last few days pertaining to Spurs. I'm Adam Hurry and to mark the 100th episode of my Football Clichés podcast, Jamie Carragher popped in to discuss his footballing fascinations and irritations on the latest edition of Mesut Harland Dicks. It's like Desert Island Discs, but for football. I played for England as a striker. Really? At, uh, yeah, don't look so shocked. I am shocked. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I watched you at the 1997 Amsterdam Sony Sixes. I can't believe this. <laughs> Whether this is a feather in my cap or not, I was keeping Emil Heskey out of England on the 16th team. He was on the <laughs> That bike. is a feather in your cap. <laughs> and all the teams were doing proper warm-ups and we were just bladdering balls at the wall and having <laughs> shots and just, like, just causing mayhem. And we've just gone out with no sort of like anything it's just like just go out and put like whatever and you know it was just an absolute disaster but funny in a way how is El Hadstuf these days Jamie how is he doing yeah I don't know yeah he rates me really highly <laughs> <laughs> to listen to Jamie in full flow check out football cliches wherever you get your pods and of course ad free on The Athletic
This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back to The View from the Lane, where hopefully we'll have stopped by now discussing Salt Bay and other fripperies and get on to the serious stuff. Charlie, you've written two pieces um, about Spurs I noted with great interest over the last few days. Um, we'll come on to the women's team, um, who you may have put the kibosh on with your piece, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I do way. feel bad about that. <laughs> yeah. But first, just talk about your profile with Oliver Skip. I mean, the jury's still out on Oliver Skip. It's hard to know whether he's going to become an absolute mainstay of this Spurs team or whether this double pivot with Hoiberg will eventually prove to be a false dawn and redundant. But he himself, a very interesting guy. Yeah, he's a really smart guy. Um, I actually interviewed him almost two years ago for The Athletic at his old school and got quite a good sense of him there. And he's a, he's a really good talker. And, you know, <laughs> we discussed his... Uh, history A-levels where he studied the apartheid and uh, the Kennedy assassination and the British Empire and these sorts of topics. And he's a funny one because he's known kind of for his smarts off the pitch and on it as well. You know, he's a very intelligent player. He's always been someone who everyone at Spurs talks about his coachability, which is this kind of buzzword that anyone absolutely loves, someone who can take on instructions and kind of run with them. You know, he's someone who I've... (laughs) followed pretty closely ever since we did that interview and and last season at Norwich I was kind of talking with Michael Bailey fairly regularly he's our Norwich correspondent and right. uh, Michael was just glowing about him as was everyone at Norwich and they were desperate to have him for another year but obviously you know what's interesting is that even up until the first game of the season Norwich was still kind of you know hanging around lingering hoping that maybe he might come back to them but then he started and played really well against City and it was like okay we <laughs> we give up. But it is rare to have players come through the academy and start and become regulars for the team. You know, that really doesn't happen very often. So I do think it's easy to take for granted, partly because Skippy is, he's only 21, but he kind of has this air of almost like a seasoned veteran. So I think it's its its felt inevitable almost that he would just come into the team and it feels like he's been there for a while. But it is quite remarkable that this happens. So yeah, this was a piece looking at him, his development and the future I suppose and whether he can as you say not be someone who we think about as having made a few appearances for the club and then moved on but someone who can actually establish himself and you know this is someone who Mourinho talked about as a future Spurs captain mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he's he's that well thought of so um, yeah it'll be really interesting to see how he kicks on from here One of the things that's changed though in those two years between you uh, interviewing him and, and where he is now of course he's completely changed physically as yeah. people do it in their late teenage years yeah. now clearly he's done it deliberately he has really muscled himself up um, so that um, whatever skills he has can be applied in and again you know I'm talking about Lacelso. Celso people I think forget that there are dirtier leagues in the Premier League but there's no more physical league the, the, the demands on your running and on your musculature to make sure that you can, you're not just going to be bounced off the ball are huge. And that's something that, you know, we saw, I, th- I think you saw it as well with Carl Walker when he went away on loan. When he came mm. back, he was a different shaped human being. And Skipper's, at least that is now in his favor. He is, he is, he is a strong man and hopefully um, that will help him as well. But that's a big change since he, since he first got into professional football. 
Yeah, and he's you know you ally that with the fact that he was a really a really good fifteen hundred meter runner sort of in his school days. So he's got that incredible natural fitness, that engine. If you can ally that with you know that slightly more physical frame, so he's not getting knocked off the ball, and that's happening far less. And I ma- and I made the point a couple of weeks ago when when Adama Traore came on against Wolves. Uh, sorry, against Spurs in that Wolves game in the League Cup, Skip made about three really good tackles on him. wasn't intimidated. He's deceptively quite quick as well, as well as being fit and now stronger. And he's just—it's interesting because he's this really rounded sportsman. And when when I spoke to people at his school, they, you know, he was the best at everything. You know, one of these infuriating people, yeah. who's just amazing at all sports. And apparently, there was a time he he'd never played darts before, and they had a darts board kind of in the common room or whatever, and he just rocked up first first attempt got a score north of 100 and they were just like oh fuck's sake skippy yeah Um, so i think he 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 is just one of those all-round guys and on that coach ability point as well there was a time where he in a school match he was told you've got to shoot more at half time and then a few minutes after half time launched one from the halfway line that uh, smacked off the crossbar just as a kind of a demonstration of whatever he's asked to do he he will just do it there was an interesting debate about skip on twitter a while ago which was Asking whether or not he benefits or is hindered by the fact that he's an academy player, specifically with the fans. Because, you know, if you look at Harry Winks, I mean, Harry Winks is an obvious, you know, precedent in the sense that he was, you know, a hardworking, technically good midfielder who came to the Tottenham Academy. And maybe at the time that kind of worked in his favour a little bit, but with the fans. But I think over time, actually, the fans have been quite tough on Winks. Now, with Skip, you know, do you think he's going to benefit from this kind of... Do you think he will benefit from the popularity of being one of our own, or do you think that you know it might actually count against him in a sense? I do think that's really interesting, like, and I think we've spoken about this before with Winks. I do, I do find that quite odd that you would think that would insulate him um, from criticism more. When, as you say, actually over the last couple of years, it feels like it's it's almost become a he's become a bit of a lightning rod for criticism, yeah. and I don't I don't really understand it. I don't know if there's a feeling of um, once the homegrown players have slotted in that they become less exciting to supporters, that they seem a bit humdrum. A bit part of the furniture. Yeah, a little bit. That is exactly what it is. So We have become a football society, to use a phrase, obsessed with the value of transfers and all the rest of it. And a player mm. who comes to the, who's at the club for nothing, once the initial joy, and of course Kane, as, as in so many things, an exception to all rules, once the joy of seeing one of our own come through wears off, there's always a suspicion that the person of whom you've paid Forty-five million pounds for is actually a better player underneath it all, and yet mm. all you can do is to continue to use that most important of football matrix, your eyes, to say, well, actually, he doesn't pass the ball any better than him, he doesn't break the lines any better than him, he isn't better defensively than him. You're right. Wink, Winks has has become less valuable in people's minds because he he doesn't get the leeway afforded. And Domblay, to use the, the example again, because he didn't yeah. cost fifty million quid. Um, it's as yeah. simple as that. Now, Harry's got to look after, look after this somewhat himself as well. He has allowed himself to become or has been coached and allowed himself to become coached to being a slightly more negative player than he wants or is necessary. But he can pass the ball. This was a kid who was passing the ball for England not so very long ago. Now, look, that, that seems like mad talk now, doesn't it? When you can't get yeah. you can't get into that Tottenham midfield. Only three years ago, he was. everyone thought that he would be a central part of the England midfield going into the Euros, but... Of course, it hasn't really turned out like that. I, th- I wonder if, in part, you know, I think the Mourinho appointment didn't, didn't clearly didn't work out for Wings at all. Uh, Hoybjerg was signed more or less in his position, 
And I also just think, I don't know whether it's a kind of hangover from the various injuries that he suffered through the sort of 2017, 18, 19 time. But I just, I'm just not sure he quite has the same running power off the ball as he did, you know, the famous kind of Real Madrid performance, for example, back in October 2017. So I just don't don't see him playing with the same kind of confidence and control that he used to when he was at his best. On Skip, what do you think is his... Because obviously this this season he's played in the middle of a midfield three with Hojbjerg to to one side doing, you know, all the the kind of pressing work. But against Villa, it was a 4-2-3-1, again, alongside Hojbjerg, uh, in a system which maybe gives Spurs, I think, perhaps a little bit more solidity in midfield, though there are questions about chance creation and ball progression. Charlie, what do you think is what do you think is the best midfield balance and does it have Skip in it or not? I think for the moment, yeah, I think that double pivot works well with Skip and Hoybier. I, I, I think the three just didn't quite work. So for now, I would stick with that. Um, and I also think it's interesting talking about Winks because he is an obvious comparison as, you know, a neat and tidy centre mid who came through the academy. Now, Winks played more as a number eight throughout the academy and, and then, you know, became more withdrawn and as you say Danny maybe a bit more conservative in his passing but Skip you know he he wants to be a complete midfielder he doesn't want to be a DM and obviously you know a kind of just typecast as a DM obviously at the moment that makes the most sense for this team but he wants to be able to get forward and join attacks he's fit enough to do that for Norwich last season uh, there was a goal he scored where he kind of you know, ran, covered a huge amount of distance to get a tap in. And then another where he drove into the box from deep in his own half. Uh, I think it was against Huddersfield to win a penalty. So he he has that in his locker as well. And it's about, at this stage of his career, making sure that he continues to develop those things and isn't seen as purely a kind of holding midfielder so that he has more variety and, and can play in lots of different positions. Because, you know, it's going to change. At the moment, 4 2 3 one for me anyway, with him and Hoybier, looks like the best bet, but it's going to evolve. He does have uh, some examples now of, of how the defensive midfielder can be more effective in the team, even in a double pivot, and those are Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice. Mm. Now look, it's ridiculous to compare with Declan Rice at this stage, but both those two players are essentially defensive midfielders who, because they both play in the team, allow each other to get forward a bit more and do a bit yeah. more. And... At the moment, I think the way Spurs are doing it is that Skip stays and Hoiberg goes. I, and, and despite his excellent goal the other day, my suspicion is um, that the better lineup would be Hoiberg staying and Skip going. Yeah, and I wonder how much as well, Danny, that's about pulling rank at this point where Hoiberg is the far more established player. Sure. So, you know, you kind of have to wear on your stripes a little bit, don't you? Well, that's that. kind of the manager's gig to me. To me, that seems like the manager's decision about who should be doing the running rules. We'll see. So I just wanted to, while we've got Jack with your kind of England hat on, I mean, from from some people I've spoken to, you know, regards Skip, they feel like there's an opportunity there from an England perspective because that central midfield area has not always been our strongest suit and Rice and Phillips, for some, feels like an area where there are improvements to be made. I mean, do you, when do you think is realistic for Skip? Do you think by the end of the season, Skip should be pushing for that England squad? Honestly, I'd be surprised. I just think right now, I don't think that many new players are going to come into the squad between now and the World Cup right. in 13 months' time, just because I think Southgate more or less wants to stick with the players who went to the Euros. Mm. Um, maybe if someone's playing exceptionally well in the Premier League, they'll come, you know, who, for example, Mason Greenwood, who didn't go to the Euros, yeah. could come back in to reckoning. But if you look at that central midfield space, Rice, Phillips, Henderson and Bellingham, I think will all definitely yeah. go. And then, I mean, I know it was only Andorra the other night, but the big 
the big change that we saw there was Phil Foden playing in in that midfield too, alongside James Ward-Prowse. And again, you know, Ward-Prowse is probably ahead of Skip in the pe- in the England pecking order. And Foden was incredible in the middle, playing amazing diagonal passes to Chilwell and Saka and Sancho ahead of him. And so I kind of think that England might well go into the World Cup next year with Foden in the two alongside Rice and dropping Phillips and then having like Phillips on the bench. And then you've got Henderson as an experienced option and Bellingham as a young option. Although I think Bellingham you know, would feel that his performances for Dortmund suggest that he ought to be starting games as well. So in that sense, I think the pathway is a little bit blocked for now. Although after Qatar, you know, if Henderson retires and maybe Phillips isn't playing so well, maybe Declan Rice moves to centre-back, I don't know, then that's when I think, you know, the, is in between Qatar and Euro 2024 in Germany, that's when I think there might be more scope for someone like a skip to come in in the middle of the pitch. I guess if you are skip or anyone, you know, with with England ambitions, and, and, and look, we're not saying that, this should be happening anytime soon he's only only just turned 21 he's extremely young but I think Jude Bellingham someone who shows there there often is what I think in rugby they use the term bolter someone who kind of makes a late charge for the squad um you know just by he plays really well and puts himself in a position where it's really hard to ignore him and 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 Bellingham is you know it's probably encouraging for the younger players to know and I know Bellingham's an exceptional talent but that they know that you know if you turn it on and you show that you're good enough somehow a head coach will find a way to find a place for you in the squad, even if you kind of weren't someone who was necessarily thought of as likely to get in the squad a year or so before. Well, it was a really interesting piece. And uh, it's interesting that the player is, we're talking about whether he can even make it at Spurs and whether he can get into the England team. He's one of those, isn't he, who the Mm. next 18 months will be very, very interesting to watch. And also thank you for reminding me that the things he was studying in his history A-level when I was studying, they were current events. Um, (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. Let's talk about another piece you wrote about the women's football team at Spurs. And until you wrote your piece and kiboshed them, boxed them, as they say in South London, um, they were heading for the top of the table. But it really is a big change that are there. They've they've recruited, they've got a new coach, and, and, and it's all looking rather more rosy, isn't it? Yeah, I, it, it was that classic thing where I, I, I did fear that that as you you know they won they won their first four league games of the season mm-hmm. going into this weekend and so yeah I spoke to Rianne Skinner the head coach who's really really impressive I really enjoyed chatting to her you know she seems to have a pretty clear idea of how she wants the team to play and you know it's it's getting on the ball being confident trusting one another a lot of work on attacking play uh, attacking patterns in preseason I mean she came in last November. Um, and interestingly, well, I found this interesting. Her predecessors were f- sacked on a year to the day after Pochettino was sacked. Um, and it was quite a parallel because in the same way that it was felt that they'd done an amazing job, like with Pochettino, but that things had gone a bit stale and, you know, they needed a refresh. And obviously we saw that with the men's team, that decision didn't work out so well. But uh, thus far, or certainly, you know, looking at this season, it looks like that was a good decision and Skinner has been able to refresh things. I mean, last season, as you say, was a bit of a struggle, but then having a full preseason to work with the players to really get across how she wants the team to play and also, what you know, about their attitude and that, that no one can outwork them and all of this thing to making sure that they're super fit and they've scored a lot of late goals this season. You know, she's really got across that philosophy and her ideas and as, and as you say, Danny, they've made some astute signings so it's exciting, uh, you know. It's one of those where y- you then feel quite invested in it. Yeah. Um, once you know a bit more about it and the background and all of that sort of thing, and and she's a really interesting talker. So, 
yeah, I just I, I really hope they can kick on and that the, the challenge they have now they play United and Arsenal. I think their next there's actually a really long gap now. They don't play in the WSL for almost a month, but then they play United and Arsenal. Uh, Arsenal have won all their games and and won the North London derby in the cup. It was five one though. Yeah, yeah, I mean Spurs went ahead and and you know I think we're playing okay. Uh, but that will, and it will probably have a, a better sense of whether the team are going to be you know pushing for top three in Champions League or whether they're going to have to lower their ambitions. But it's, yeah, a great start to the season and I'm just sorry that I jinxed things ahead of the weekend. I was really interested in the interview, Jack, because um, when you see the the leading coaches in women's football um, being interviewed, I, I think we're getting away from the sport just parroting the men's game. I think she talked about the game in a way that, because it's not in the direct spotlight of, of the men's game quite yet, it allowed her to talk with a freedom about what they were trying to do in a way that you wouldn't get from a male manager because either A, he wouldn't want to give away his secrets or B, he'd be afraid of being laughed at when you start talking about particular positional things you're trying to do. And I've got to say this, I have great hope that uh, it's in the women's game that, that the next the next lot of bright ideas, without the pressure of the Premier League and all the rest of it, my hope is that the next three Bielsa's are all going to come out of the, out of the women's game because they're not they're not in that that crushing thing of of conformity that most football coaches seem to need need in the, in the men's game. Completely, like whether as a fan or a journalist, it's always great to hear a coach say, "Here's what I was trying to get the team to do." Here's how we were trying to achieve Absolutely. our goals. This is what we wanted to do on the pitch. Mm. And this goal is an example of that because player A did this and player B did that. Like that that's really what that's kind of what the media exists to do. So it's it's such a delight when you hear, as you see in Charlie's interview, a coach talking through precisely how their players achieved what they wanted them to achieve. And it, you know, I don't mean I don't mean this to sound critical, but we all know that Nuno doesn't say much in press conferences about his team, and there's you know this is something we talked about the other day, and there's all sorts of reasons for this, whether it's Nuno's own personality or, to be honest, the pressure he's under at Tottenham, which is very heavy, and the scrutiny and everything. So I, I don't, I'm not using this as a stick to beat Nuno with. I'm just saying there is a big difference between the openness of coaches in women's football when talking about football, which is really great, you know, which as a fan and somebody who watches the game, you want to hear. And some of the kind of defensiveness of some coaches in men's football. I think that's, I think that dynamic, which you just described, is part of the reason why, for example, Emma Hayes is such a big star on TV because she is, you know, in her, she's obviously been tremendously successful in charge of the Chelsea women's team, but she's also like tremendously engaging when it comes to explaining what's going on in the pitch. Yeah, the the comparison I would make is uh, in in college football and the NFL where the college football coaches, despite playing under tremendous pressure themselves, they get paid a lot of money and they're playing in front of crowds of 60 and 70,000 on a Saturday evening. But they all the all the innovations in American football in the last 15 years have come out of the college game just because the coaches there have a tiny bit more freedom. Take another quick break and we'll talk about, and Spurs fans were maybe biting their lip given that the team is not at its peak at the moment, um, another brilliant weekend uh, for the actual stadium. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a... mm, 
real POS. You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Yeah, welcome back again. And uh, following the big boxing match at the, uh, we still have to call it the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium um, because for some reason Daniel Levy can't seem to sell the naming rights. Uh, I suspect that reason is he wants too much money for them. The NFL game that was there, first of all, just on a purely level of a spectacle, it was amazing to see the pitch being taken out. We saw that thing on Twitter where they took out the football pitch and left the American football pitch underneath it. The whole scenario with the woman singing the American National Anthem up on the walkway. And I mean, I'm not sure quite uh, wanted fighter aircraft flying over the Spurs stadium, but it looks amazing, uh, Jack, when it, when it puts on these big events, even in some ways, because perhaps because we're, we're, we're more focused on the event itself, because it's, it's not just, you know, let's pitch up, have a couple of beers with our mate and watch the football. It, the non-football events look even more amazing at the stadium. Yeah, it really is an I don't quite have the words to describe it, but it really is like a visually very impressive ground inside and out. Uh, it's obviously built for, you know, massive football games, which it's had, and also massive non-events, you know, non-football stuff. Like even down to the, I've, I don't know what the technical term for them is, like the light boards, you know, the boards which say goal Spurs mm. when Spurs score. They all light up and everything for NFL. And, and uh, yeah, it, it's a whole, it's a visually very, very impressive spectacle. And it does go to show why, why NFL is so important to Daniel Levy. You know, the the end goal is not... Obviously, having these games is fantastic for the club, but if they could have a franchise, if they could have a... a, If they could have... God knows what they'd be called, the London Castles or whatever, playing at the Tottenham Stadium, what's it, eight home games in an NFL season, that would be a huge, huge value to the club for obvious reasons. And it's that that I wanted to come on to, and um, I'm going to ask you a question while knowing that I, I, I kind of... Well, I watch the NFL with tremendous interest. I wonder about the NFL's commitments to this idea of uh, something happening in London. I'll tell you one of the reasons for why. I think that's the 27th game that they've had 
in London, and not one of them has featured two, te two teams with a winning record at the same time. They are sending the dregs over here. They decide in advance who the dregs are going to be, and they're always right. Um, so far, no two teams with a positive record at that stage of the season has played in London. But secondly, and it is probably wrong to judge something in a fleeting moment in a documentary, which is itself kind of semi-reality, but the Amazon documentary, there was that moment where Daniel Levy is showing Roger Goodall, the commissioner of the NFL, around the, the stadium, and he's talking to him as an equal. And you can see once or twice, Goodall is looking out the corner of his eye to one of his advisors saying, now, who is this guy again? I, I hope that Daniel Levy isn't um, deluding himself um, because we all know the logistical problems of flying people back and forth across the Atlantic. The teams from the West Coast would be coming halfway around the world. I, as I say, I just hope that Daniel isn't deluding himself about the possibilities. He's definitely very close to lots of NFL owners. You know, people like Bob wow. Kraft, Stephen okay. Ross. These are people who Levy has worked with over the years, who he's relied on, he's lent on for advice, and he really values their, he values his relationship with these people. And to be honest, in discussions about potential buyers of Tottenham Hotspur, the names of NFL owners often come up. You know, I can't say that a deal's ever been close with, with no. any of these individuals, but it's, you know, if when you look at people who are discussing the context of possible buyers for Tottenham Hotspur, and you know, talks have happened in the past few years, certainly, uh, it's often these big NFL, it's either, you know, US private equity firms or NFL owners. And I think there's a lot about the Tottenham Hotspur model which would appeal to NFL owners even more so if Tottenham Hotspur had a, an NFL club of its own playing playing in that very ground. Well, I suppose the f the first big step was to, to 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 replace Wembley as the as the obvious place to play the games in London. It's definitely done that. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the Tottenham Stadium is better than than Wembley for football Absolutely. or NFL or any yeah. other reason. What I would say is that the transport is worse. Yep. at Tottenham, but you know, there's not really much they can do about that now. They can't. They're not going to build a new tube station. And an extra bit of the Victoria line overnight. But uh, yeah, the the transport isn't great. But you can certainly draw a clear line between the stadium, NFL games, a possible NFL franchise, and ultimately a possible sale of Tottenham Hotspur to an interested American party. If the Super League had happened, which of course it didn't, then I think that would have made Tottenham even more attractive to an, to an NFL owner. Because the whole point in the Super League was that not only would it guarantee revenue, but it would also control costs. And the Super League would look a lot more like the NFL than the current mm. the current version of Premier yep. League does, where there's no cost control, and that means you know cost spiral. So if Tottenham had been playing, let's just say hypothetically, the Super League had succeeded, it had gone through, Tottenham had been part of a new Super League launching next year with, with cost control, Tottenham Hotspur in a Super League would look much more attractive to investors than Tottenham in their current form in the Premier League because guaranteed Super League revenue and be cost control. And under those circumstances, I think Tottenham would have been hugely attracted to an NFL owner. If you stick an NFL franchise in as well, it's an, suddenly an incredibly valuable thing, which, yeah, maybe you would pay £3 billion for. Well, but for a start, you're, you're, you're halving your stadium costs, aren't you? Because you're, they're both mm. playing in the same ground. So that simple saving alone starts to pay for itself very quickly. Um, and it's very interesting, Jack, you brought the program to a, the, the program, the podcast to an obvious um, conclusion because I believe that the sale of Newcastle to the Saudi Arabian royal family has brought back the European Super League in a huge way. There is no way that the 
the phalanx of people who now own English clubs will tolerate not being able to qualify. Most of them not being able, and it's now most of the big owners won't qualify each year for the Champions League. The Premier League have here lit the blue touch paper on its own destruction because I'm, I'm, I'm certain that the sale of Newcastle means that the European Super League will be back on, on, the, on the blocks in, in whatever form it's dressed up as. And people say, Danny, that can't happen because they now have to get the permission of the Premier League to... Please, I mean, look at the people we're talking about. They didn't get where they are today by asking permission to do things, which takes us round to, as I say, uh, the uh, you couldn't write it, of course, that the, the, the start of the Newcastle revival, they play their joker against Spurs. Um, and on Thursday, I won't be here for various reasons. On Thursday, um, some combination of Jack and James and Charlie will preview that, what now turned into a huge and slightly hilarious game at St. James's Park. Chaps, it's been a joy. Thank you very much indeed. Remember, everyone, tune in again. If you like the podcast, of course, tell all your friends about it, particularly the ones who don't like Spurs. They'll just enjoy the podcast. They'll be back on Thursday with a big preview of the massive game against Newcastle. Thank you for listening. The Athletic.